Welcome back to the Times and Places podcast with me, Caitlin Bryant. Each week, I sit down with a different guest to discuss how particular times and places have meant something of significance to them or impacted their life in some way. This week's guest is none other than cycling powerhouse Geraint Thomas. He's one of cycling's greatest competitors, with a list of achievements including six World Cup and two World Championship wins, double Olympic gold medalist and not to mention Tour de France winner. In this episode, we touch on the places and moments that made him, as well as his love for the sport and the fullbacks that can come with it. Oh, and it's probably worth mentioning that Mariah Carey gets a shout out. So if that doesn't make you want to listen, I don't know what will. So here's the second episode of Times and Places with Geraint Thomas. Hey. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Third time lucky we got there in the end. Finally. <laughs> so, Ger, I thought we'd take it all the way back to the start. And as someone who spent the majority of their life cycling, I'm sure you can't even imagine a time before you donned the Lycra. But what I'd love to know is what were the events or the reasons as to how and why you got into cycling in the first place? Uh, basically, I was just going um, swimming down a local leisure centre, so Mandy Stadium. Um, it was only, I don't know, less than two miles from my house where I grew up. And I was going swimming down there. I saw an advert for a kids' club, um, Mandy Flyers, that was just starting out, like on the outdoor track down there. And just wanted to give it a go because it was, you know, track bikes with one gear, no brakes, just seemed like different. Just wanted to give that a go. And um, yeah, I just enjoyed it and, and seemed to be all right at it, you know, from yeah. the start. So um, made some good friends down there. And then that's what kept me going at it then, really. It was a good group of us down there and ended up traveling to races and just got the bug for it then. And especially when, you know, when you're half decent or something and you start making, you know, you win 30 quid on a Saturday because you <laughs> win a bike race here you enjoy it a little bit more and you just continue to do it. And, and that was it basically. So just really stumbled into it. Yeah. That's pretty good that they used to give you 30 quid for ring, winning races, even when you were that yeah. young. Yeah. 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 So um, it was like, especially back then, because, you know, you know, everyone that's older now is like, oh yeah, back in my day, like it, it, money was, you know, you know, inflation and stuff. 30 <laughs> quid back then was a lot more than it is now, but it was, you know, especially when I was like 12 or whatever, like, well, yeah, it was like, yeah, 19. Yeah, that's like, yeah, so like year seven, year eight, isn't it? God, yeah, yeah. rolling in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. So, and then we're going away races and, um, you know, we, it, they were talent spotters, they were called. And it's basically like the Omnium now, which is part, which is an Olympic event. Back then it wasn't. And it was just something that kids would do. So you do just a variety of races, you know. So, yeah, if I won that on the on the Saturday you'd get a little yellow jersey it'd say like where it was so you know there was uh your Palmer Park in in London or somewhere up in Scunthorpe or Manchester so you'd have the place name on the yellow jersey in 30 quid so it was uh oh it was just a massive buzz to be getting that especially yellow jersey because it's so iconic isn't it like even then I was only just into cycling but I still knew what a yellow jersey was so yeah, that was where it all started, really, yeah. And I know, obviously, you said you kind of travel around a lot with racing, but you're a very proud Welshman and you kind of speak so fondly of Wales. I totally get it. Like, I often feel like I sound like a broken record and I'm just sort of ramming my love for Wales <laughs> down people's throats. And I just like, yeah, all right, sure, I don't care. <laughs> but would you say there's kind of one place in particular that reminds you of your youth and sort of brings back those feelings of nostalgia? Um, well, definitely when I ride in around Cardiff, because I tend to, whenever I'm back in Cardiff now, be off the bike because it's generally the off season or I've got a little break. And, um, so I really ride my bike in Cardiff. So if I was to go out and do some old, go in the lanes out by, um, like Liz Vainway, that's sort of area we used to go a lot as, as kids. So if I ever go out that way, like straight away, some of those old, yeah, country lanes, those little climbs and, and stuff all around there just brings it back straight away. And 
Um, or even out Cowbridge Way, you know, there's that like motorbike calf, like just off the A48. By, you drop down by like, is it the Cowbridge. one by like the Mughal Emperor? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, <laughs> just little calves like that, which I don't know, you just, you, even if you're driving past in the car, it will suddenly just like bring back a memory from from when you were kids and stuff. And, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to do it as well. It's kind of like, you know, when you hear a song or you just, smell a smell it, it can instantly just take you back and um yeah that's what it's like when it just suddenly come across some road that I rode up you know 20 years ago yeah basically the that kind of a48 stretch like I totally relate to that because I'm like my family's from Bridgen so whenever I get on that like motorway not motorway the a48 like headed in or out of Cardiff it just like makes yeah. brings me back to like being a kid again yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, heads to the Valleys Road because we always used to go up that way because my mum's family's from up there. And um, well, I, I hardly ever go up there. But, you know, if I am in a car along there, it just like it's changed a bit. But yeah, there's there's still landmarks that just stick out and you're just like, wow. Yeah. Funny old feeling. Nostalgia. Back, yeah. But the podcast theme is on times and places. So it would kind of be strange if I didn't highlight a pretty important place that's had such an impact on not only yours, but other sporting greats, and that being your secondary school, Whitchurch High School. And there's often a lot of talk surrounding yourself, as well as your fellow pupils of the school, Gareth Bale and Sam Warburton. But do you honestly think there's something in the way in which the school kind of nurtures sporting talent that produces such successful sportsmen and women? Or do you think it's down to the individuals themselves and their abilities and it's just a coincidence because obviously Whitchurch is one of the biggest schools in Wales? Yeah, I think um, I was going to say that. It is the biggest school in Wales, pupils-wise, so it's got the best chance of picking up some talent. <laughs> but I think they, like for me personally, they definitely helped in the way they allowed me time off to go to races and they like supported my cycling. It wasn't like a, a challenge to... You know, it wasn't like I was fighting the school to to do stuff in cycling. So that certainly helped. I think, you know, it is a very sporty school as well. You know, it's got a rich heritage and, you know, a lot of, you know, athletics, you know, um, athletes have, have come through there. You know, they've got their sort of wall of fame almost. And there's, well, I, I don't know, there's there's close to hundreds on there, I would I would imagine. It's, it's, you know, there's a lot of athletes on there. Um all different sports and then obviously it's a big rugby school um so it's no surprise that it's produced a few decent rugby players and you know one of the best in sam um so i think it's it's definitely the the school definitely helped but obviously the individual as well has to have talent and and the main thing though is is the commitment to it because one thing that it doesn't irritate me, but you hear it a lot. It's like, oh, that guy, he was super talented. He could have been good. But if you don't have it, you know, as everyone says, that top inch, or you don't really want to do it, or you don't have that real passion and love for it, then you're not going to be able to really fulfill that that potential because talent will only get you, you know, so far. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you still got to be able to put in all the hard work and, and, and all that. So, um, but I think, yeah, definitely a, a mixture of, of the two of you know the school certainly supported the three of us and yeah I think as I said that heritage in the school definitely helps as well it's like um the All Blacks for instance you know um even if they're going through a rough period they're still the All Blacks and people still would maybe not fear playing them but would have that respect for them and as soon as anyone puts on that jersey they they know the the history and stuff and it just adds um it just gives you that bit extra, I think. And it's a similar thing with Whitchurch, I guess, you know, when you've seen so many athletes do so well, it's it's real. It's not like, mm. oh, someone, you know, up in North Wales, you know, that school's really good at producing athletes. Like down here, it doesn't really happen. Um, when you can actually see it, it's, it's you know, and it's happened in your area, that's when it be, becomes a lot more believable and achievable, really. Yeah. And kind of like on that thing of sort of having that belief in a way, I guess, Um just to kind of quote something you said in your book, I'm the, qu- the kid who dreamed about the tour, but imagined it as an impossible world. 
So like kind of after attaining sort of that unimaginable dream, so to speak, what advice would you give anyone out there who's still kind of striving to achieve their dreams, no matter what it is or how unattainable it seems? Yeah, I think um, the main thing is just, I think I said it when I was, as every winner of the tour has to give a little minute speech, you know, at the very end of the race. And I said, just dream big. You know, I was riding for round the mainly flyers it felt like yesterday and the next thing you know I'm stood on the, the top step on the Champs-Élysées having won the Tour de France which <laughs> is just insane like you know I used to run home from school just to watch it and so I think the main thing is just committing to it commit to 100% do everything you can and you know that if you don't succeed you still know you've given everything you have no regrets and and that's that but along the way you're still going to have a a great journey so to speak you know I sound when I sorry when I hear that it's kind of like oh yeah the journey and the journey sounds a bit sort of you know I don't know spiritual and deep doesn't it but I think it is just enjoying that whole ride almost you know and and you're still going to achieve a lot along the way yeah yeah because I think like what I've realized is there's so much detail that kind of goes into cycling and road cycling in particular that you have so much control over whether it be from like your diet, your training, the equipment, sort of technology and tactics. But it really seems that like when you get onto the road, so much of how the race pans out is sort of almost in a way totally out of your control sometimes. And how do you sort of deal with that going into races and almost having to just kind of succumb to what will be, will be in a way when you've put so much into it beforehand? Yeah, it's tough. I've said before, you know, crashing and stuff is like cricket, like, a batsman in cricket is always going to lose his wicket. He's always going to be caught or run out or whatever. And it's going to happen. And it's the same with crashing in bike races, especially when you're trying to win and you've got to put it on the line. And especially road racing, there's a lot more variety, like variables. Yeah. Um, you know, you're going down descents you've never been on before and you're racing flat out down them. And, um, you know, any, like, you know, everyone's seen, YouTube clips of, you know, cows walking out into the middle of the peloton or, you know, a dog running out and taking someone out. And it's just mad what the stuff that can go wrong. But that's what I mean. Like, it is so like if you were to go and watch like a rugby game, by and large, like what just happens on the pitch happens on the pitch. You're not going to win or lose a game because of, you know, some like fan in the in the stands. But um, what I like what you were saying there is like it's like cricket. Um, you're always going to lose a wicket. It's like cycling, you're always going to crash your bike. You just get used to it. It is kind of mad though that you have that mentality because crashing, to be able to get into that mindset of, right, well, I'm just going to crash my bike and I've got to get used to it. You know, you'll be fine. It's like a pretty um, yeah. <laughs> like big thing to like come out of it rather than just kind of losing a wicket in cricket. Yeah, it's true. I think it's just something, because I've just grown up in that in cycling um and i've always <laughs> always crashed um i don't know it's kind of like the norm and it's just the mentality that you've got to have mm. um you know if you know saying that to my mum for sure she'd be like oh don't be so silly just just what are you doing it for then just stop you know you don't have to crash like there's other things you can do <laughs> go and be a postman or something <laughs> ride your bike doing that but um yeah but you know i think if you speak to any sort of sportsman like rugby players for instance they'd have a similar mentality, you know, they, when they go out on the pitch, they can't be thinking of injuries and stuff. You yeah. know, they all, they all say it with the warm up to the world cups and things, you know, they, they can't go out there thinking, Oh, I'm going to just go a bit easy today. Cause go and get injured before the world cup. It's just, you've got to take that pin out and just go there and just do it as you always do. And, um, and what will be will be almost yeah yeah I think it's the ruptured spleen it's just the one that's just mental like you hear of like kind of all different injuries but a ruptured spleen is hardly the sort of classic sporting injury that people would get it's just mad what would you say has kind of been your worst crash that you've had and that sort of afterwards with the recovery and everything you kind of questioned like oh gosh am I going to get back to where I need to be or is this maybe sort of one broken bone or whatever it may be too far have you had any of those moments um, I haven't had any the moments where I think oh am I going to get back but I think the worst one well there's two that were bad so 
the spleen was the worst for the whole recovery because it was a lot of time off and getting back was was quite hard as well just because it lost so much like fitness really and mm-hmm. I was on the academy so I was living with the guys the whole time as well so you know like rugby players talk about it I know I keep mentioning rugby players don't I? But, <laughs> you know they go on about you know when you're doing rehab and you go in and you see the boys you know going out training and they've got to go in the gym and do all this boring rehab it's hard on the head but at least they're only seeing them for that chunk of time but I was actually living in a house with all these other guys you know so it was just rubbing salt into the wounds every day that I couldn't actually do what they were doing. But the recovery from that was was pretty tough and long. But then another hard one was when I fractured my pelvis during the tour in 2013, I was still able to ride my bike and the, the doctor said, you're not going to do it any more damage by riding your bike. It's just if you can put up with the pain. So that was a bit of a, a challenge almost then. It was like, right, okay, I'll be able to do this. And But the actual pain I was in every day, it was getting less and it was getting better, which kept me going. But yeah, that was the the hardest injury when I was riding because I could still actually ride, but the pain from it, if that makes sense. Because normally when you break a bone, you can't ride your bike then, you're just off. Yeah. And like, obviously I know you're kind of saying that you don't want to, you want to stay in like a positive mindset and not get into like a negative one. But have you kind of had moments where you've had like a pretty big setback, but sort of when you've looked back on it in hindsight, you sort of realised, do you know what? In a weird way, I was like, that was meant to be. And I'm glad I went through that because you learned from it or something better came from it. Yeah, I think the biggest one was um, Tour Switzerland is like um, one of the last big races before the Tour de France. And so then in 16, I was due to go to the Tour as like, a backup leader to to Froomey. So in Tour Swiss, you know, I'd, I was pushing like the weight, you know, I was, I was really light. I was going there to try to win it and then, you know, go to the Tour and be full of morale and, and do this new role basically. And, and, and Swiss just went really bad. I ended up, I think, 11th and I was a bit run down, a bit sick. It was just got too light basically. Completely balls up the whole diet thing, got way too carried away with just my weight and not power to weight and everything and um and then the tour I was my I didn't even get to start as backup leader I was just there as you know the same role as I had the previous year basically and just riding for him doing the same stuff so but at the end of that tour I was like oh man I did I really balls that up you know the last month or so leading up to the tour because but then it was a massive as you say a massive lesson that I learned because then I didn't do it again. Mm. Then going into 2018, the diet and stuff, I really nailed, like I really knew what worked for me and what definitely didn't work. And I was a lot more relaxed about, you know, not being super light. It's not about being as light as you can be, but being light, but still be able to produce the the big power. And yeah, then obviously 2018 went the way it did, but without going through that in 16, I might never have found that limit and known exactly where I was and had that confidence that, yeah, this weight is perfect for me to to perform in this race. So at the time, it's like you're you're annoyed with yourself and you're devastated because this was your chance to do something and do well. But then, yeah, as I say, as long as you learn from it and you don't make that mistake again, I think that's a good thing. It's just if you continue to do that same mistake, that's when it's unforgivable, really. That's when it's like, well what's the point you know so yeah yeah and how did it feel though like winning in 2018 like is it what you imagined it would feel like or is it kind of you just it's indescribable winning the Tour de France yeah it's weird it's kind of I never thought what it would be like after it's always just you you, you visualize the actual race going really well you visualize crossing that line with your hands in the air but you never think oh, after I've won that, I'm going to stay in some really nice hotel in London <laughs> for two nights and do all these interviews and go to this place and that place and get given clothes to wear and, you know, go to sports personality and just get given suits and, you know, all that other stuff that came and, like, you know, all these appearances and this and that. Yeah, I just generally hadn't thought about that. So that was all just a massive, like, wow, this is, like, nuts, you know. And But I really wanted to take it in because as we said, you know, two years before when I was wanting to do better, but it all fell apart. And there's been other races, which 
of having gone to plan and, and like I just know that things just can change at the in an instant and it's not every day or every year you you get to win the tour and I just wanted to really enjoy it make the most of it say yes to most stuff I got asked to do and just soak it all up and it certainly meant the, the next season was a bit slower starting than than normal but it was I'm really glad I did that because well, since it hasn't gone to plan, you know, things have gone wrong. <laughs> There's still um, time, Garrett. There's still time. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it, it just, you've just got to enjoy the good moments as well mm. because you just never know what, what what's wrong. Of course. Yeah. And how did it compare to winning like a home Olympic gold? Were they very different experiences or were they quite yeah. similar? They were very different, but also similar. Like I think... The biggest difference is the fact that the tour was it was just me, whereas the Olympics was well you're part of GB you know um, the BOA you know GB athletes and then even in cycling there's a lot of people that win gold medals and okay in Wales I was the only cyclist that year but you know you're part of a team pursuit there's four of you mm. um, you know and in in cycling like back then or even these days unless you win like two or three golds it, it's just uh, it's alright you know it's average just to win one gold um, but with the tour it was just it was all on me the yeah. whole that limelight was just on me so that was that was by far the biggest difference and and then the homecoming in Cardiff was just absolutely insane like I'd done it with um, the other with the Olympic team you know in after Beijing and after London but this one in Cardiff was just nuts. It was just unbelievable. Like I was partly, they asked me if I wanted to do it. I was going to say, like, how does it come out? Like, how does it come to be? Is it like they get in contact with you being like, oh, we, we're going to do, we're going to do one with you like it or not? Or do you get yeah, like so, <laughs> say in the matter? It came through like my agent, it did. And he was like, oh, this is what, it must have been Cardiff Council or Welsh Cycling. Someone had, you know, said mm. about this homecoming thing. And I was like, can I make so many of this? <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't even that, but it was more like, will anyone be there? Like, is it just going to be like, you know, 100 people there? Like, is this going to be really awkward? Because um, I had no idea the impact, like uh, the amount of people that had watched it or even, you know, taken any notice of it. And then um, it was the same time as the Eisteddfod was in Cardiff. And um, so we started off at um, the Senate and... I just walked out there and it was just unbelievable. I just couldn't see any like pavement or anything. It was just a sea of people. And I was just like, holy crap, like this is nuts. But then I also thought maybe it's just because the you know, I here. Like once we go into the <laughs> castle next, there's going to be no one bloody there. They're all here. And uh go to the castle though, and it was just as nuts. And uh, And that was a massive buzz. Like just that support and like... Yeah, there's just how many people got enjoyment from seeing me performing there. It was, that was amazing, actually. That was probably the best thing I did after the tour, you know, with all the, you know, going on Graham Norton and meeting all these, like, you know, famous people and, you know, getting, you know, a few free meals or, you know, doing all this random cool stuff. But that homecoming by far was the best, uh, the best thing. Yeah. Was it quite emotional as well? It was a bit, and it was, but it was just, you're just kind of like on this, like on cloud nine, so to speak, you know, and you're just sort of like floating along and taking it in, but also a bit like, this is just like insane. And what, what, what's going on here? And it's only like afterwards where you, you get a sense, like um, one of my mates was stood at the top of the castle mm. and he filmed the crowd and like how many people were actually there just covering, um, what is this, the road? The bottom of St. Mary Street, anyway, whatever road that is. And, um, yeah, it was just, yeah, nuts the amount of people. Yeah, it's crazy. And I know you've kind of, like, I think this is what I find so fascinating about cycling is you were saying, like, in 2016, you were sort of, like, racing for through me. And I think this is what I find so interesting about it is that 
it's a team sport and an individualistic sport at the same time, but you're also competing against members in your own team. And you've said yourself, so at the tour, you logically become more about the professional bond rather than the personal bond. And that there are a few sports where you're a teammate with someone, but also their rival, where what's best for you may be to do what's worse for them. How do you kind of navigate those nuances of cycling and not let it get in the way of the team and sort of your relationships with your teammates? Yeah, it's tough. I think that's the biggest difference with cycling in any other sport, really, because, yeah, like you say, me and Froomey go into that race pretty much, well, they'd say on a par, but Froomey had won four, so he's naturally just going to be just above me anyway, no matter what happens. And, yeah, the, the fact that we're teammates, but we're also both really want to win. He wanted to win his fifth. Five is the record number of wins, so he really wanted that. And I really wanted to win my first. And um, I think as long as the person, it's all in the personalities, I guess. Like if you're both open with each other and honest and like Froomey was with me, to be fair, like even by the end, like he still wanted to win. And he's like, right, I want to attack at the bottom of this climb. And I was thinking, mate, that's like, that's a bit crazy. Because if you go there and then one of the other guys who's second or third is able to follow you and you crack and then I crack behind because you've gone so hard at the bottom we might lose the race and neither of us win. And it's, it's hard, but you just have to stay. I was just staying in my own sort of happy place, so to speak. My, my little bubble of just confident in what I had done to that point and just knew all I got to do is just keep doing the same thing. And why would there be a different outcome? You know, um, unless somebody else gains a third leg, so to speak, you know, it's, it's, it should be okay. Um, so it didn't let it affect me, but although it could have quite easily, it could have cracked me and or I could have had a, had a go at him and it, the relationship could have just been, it could have got, you know, bad. Like obviously with Brad and Froome. I was going to say, do you think that, yeah, that's kind of what caused the issues. Was that because of that sort of these details about cycling that you're kind of competing against your teammate? For sure. And I think, you know, back then Brad was the undisputed leader because he had, won all the build-up races. He was the leader from the start of the year. Then Froomey had this great form in the race. And, you know, he obviously wanted to make the most of that and tried to win because he was feeling good and he felt he could. So it's a lot of it comes down to the management as well and how they deal with it. Back then, they probably didn't deal with it the best way. But it's tough as well when you've got big egos and, and things in the team as well. But um, that's certainly the biggest challenge in, in, in cycling. But most teams don't have that problem because... Most teams only have one guy mm. who can potentially win. Well, not most, only a few teams have a guy that can win anyway. Yeah. But to have two, um, it certainly adds another dimension. Yeah. And I guess that's what, in a way, those makes you guys better is because you're surrounded by such great cyclists as well. So you're sort of around that and you want to keep on getting better, but it doesn't make it easier. Um, but was it, did it kind of make the win that little bit sweeter, kind of knowing that everyone thought that Froomey was going to win, like both like the media and maybe like the team, the management were like, oh, probably Froomey's going to win this. Like, did that, was there like a part of you that was like, oh, that's a nice feeling knowing that like I glitched it? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Because there was a lot of people that had sort of doubted me and stuff anyway. Mm. And it's always nice to prove people wrong. Um, and that does motivate you as well at times. Like if there's someone, I don't go out of my way to read stuff in the press, but some things filter through, don't they? Yeah. As as ever. And it's it's definitely nice to to prove people wrong and shut a few people up. But um yeah, it it was satisfying, definitely, definitely. Um and then obviously in 2019 it was kind of like a mirrored situation, but with a different outcome where you were going to defend your title, but your teammate, Egan Bernal, ended up winning and you came second. What was that feeling like kind of when it doesn't go to plan and you don't win, but then also have to really graciously sort of support your teammate or at the same time, who's just beaten you? Yeah, it's tough. I think because that year as well, like I said, you know, done a lot of partying and a lot of <laughs> traveling around in that winter and, it was a big battle to get back into top shape and tour Swiss. I did as the build up, my last build up race and crashed out of that. Someone again fell in front of me. I went over the top of him, banged my head. The doctor told me I had to stop because I hit my head and I bleeding and stuff. And 
Um, so the preparation was definitely not ideal and it was so up and down. And But then to get back into good enough shape to be competitive, to win. And then was I was, I took a lot of pride in that really because I'd known how much, well, how many downs I'd had that that season really. It was, a you know, a few stomach bugs and missed a lot more racing than I normally would. And it just wasn't plain sailing at all. So just to be on that start line in good enough shape to win was was a massive um, result in a way by itself. But then the way the race ended, um, one stage got cut short halfway through because there's a massive hailstorm and landslide. Um, nothing that could be, you know, couldn't have done anything about it. It was just, <laughs> just what happened. Um, then the next day, the last mountain stage was just cut short. We just did the one climb and, so, yeah, if, if we had actually finished the route that was planned, it might have been different, but it's just one of them. You just got to accept that sometimes it's just not meant to happen. And it it made it easier that it was actually a teammate that won because the team won and it was still really good. And But then at the same time, it made it quite hard, as you say, because it's your teammate and you get on with him and you know that this guy's special because he was only 22 maybe I think he was um, and you know he's got a massive future and he's 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 super talented but at the same time you're like I wish it was me though. yeah come on mate you've got loads but, of years ahead of you let me exactly, ask this yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and obviously you've had loads of highs in your career but what would you say has been like a time in your life that you found extremely hard or difficult whether it be sort of personally or professionally um I think one of obviously the injuries are tough um but I think the biggest one was actually last year come the tour and then obviously stage three boom it's all over um so it was hard to take and then you know you go home and you're like oh that was a bit well, I didn't go home because um, we were going to to the Olympics straight away. So Max was there and my son was there in Paris, which was really nice, actually. He loved watching it. I saw some videos of him, you know, oh, cheering for dad and stuff, drinking sparkling water out of the champagne oh. glass and all this stuff. Um, <laughs> spent the night with him and my wife, Sar, uh, in Paris. And then Monday, had the day with him and then flew to Tokyo that evening. And then got to Tokyo and it was like, okay, it's so kind of like a new start almost because you're with GB, totally different surroundings, different people. One teammate actually, Teo, was in the tour with me, but you know, uh, the rest, everyone else is different. So it's kind of like, a, as they say, change is good as a rest. And it's kind of like, right, okay, I can still do something now. Finished the tour pretty well. Took it easy, well, as easy as you can in the tour for the last few days. Olympic road race. And then after 100K, Teo hit something on the road, crashed right in front of me, took me out again and actually landed on my right side on my shoulder again. But luckily it didn't pop my shoulder out. It probably would have been better if it did pop out because then I could have just gone home and <laughs> been the end of it. But, yeah, but I got back up, continued, but it was just in, you know, it wasn't going to happen. Um, helped the boys out, stopped, was like, right, still got the TT in three days time. All in for that now, you know, it's the last big race now go there kind of half decent start but then the legs just just weren't really there and all that sort of hard work and sacrifice and stuff just just wasn't enough and just didn't have it basically but in my head you, you talk yourself into it every time you know you, you you try to back yourself and you do everything right and no it could be, it could be good if I have a good day it can be good and anyway nope terrible and uh fly <laughs> home and it's kind of like what a shit six weeks. Like it was the worst six weeks of my career for sure. And then my contract was still being negotiated. And like, that was a big sort of something else going on on the side. Um, and it just wasn't a great time. And I guess the six weeks after were just like, it was just horrible to be honest. It was just like, oh, everything just seems to be like going to shit. Like, yeah. Did you question whether like, oh, the whether this might be kind of like you were thinking about this might be the end. I don't want to keep doing this anymore or, or. Yeah. Part, part of me was a bit like, what am I doing this for now? Like, what's the point? Like I could just retire now and do something else. And, but I still love just riding my bike and, and, and training and I never lost that, but everything else was just like, what's the point? 
Um, you know, Max is getting to the age now where he knows I'm going and he starts to miss me a bit. And, you know, you miss stuff going on with him and stuff back at home. And you're like, really, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to commit to this? But then they're only short, sharp moments and, and dark moments in, in a short period of time, really. But like I said, I never lost the love for just riding my bike. And I still always just enjoy going out on my bike and just riding and not training necessarily and, and doing efforts, but just go and ride your bike for three, four hours, especially down in South of France. You know, you go up a few climbs and you get a bit of a sweat on, you stop for a coffee. Like it's just great. You know, <laughs> not I, a bad not life. Enjoy that. Yeah. yeah. So I never lost that, but you know, all everything else, all the external stuff was just like jeepers, but I'm definitely glad that, I didn't decide to just stop there because it would have been a terrible way to just end your career. Um, and I've still got big ambitions and stuff for, for the next couple of years, really. Like nothing specific, but just enjoy racing my bike and, and just be part of some wins, win myself, but then also part of the team that wins. And, um, you know, even with the contract, you know, there's a few other teams that could have gone to, but it was like, I just want to really enjoy the last two years. And I got some really good mates here, Luke, been made to him since I was 11, 12. That's a long time, you know. Um, same with Swifty and, and and other guys in the team. So, um, yeah, a big, big two years left. Yeah. Really. Is that kind of it? That, do you think like you're going to do the two years and then you're probably going to call it quits or are you just going to keep on going until like your body's able to continue competing? Is, or have you kind of made the decision in your head a bit that you're going to draw a line under it at like in the couple of years time? Uh, it's not it's not definitely yet but um in my head it'll either be two or three like um the thing is if i'm still riding well and and still tt and well and you know paris olympics in 2024 could still be a, a really good target and then something which would definitely motivate me and get me out of bed in the morning so i definitely haven't closed that off yet um but yeah, I think just take it year by year and, and depends how many more knocks I get. Yeah. Um, and I know you've mentioned Sa quite a few times now, but how important has it been to have Sa with you kind of throughout your whole career? Because she has literally been with you through your whole career. And how important has she been as like a sort of support system for you? Yeah, massive, really. I think um, more on the, the bad times as much as the good. Um, mm. you know she's able to just sort of snap me out of it sometimes and just or be there and just be supportive and not necessarily say anything but you know just be around and um, her and her family to be honest especially now Max has come you know just helping Sarah out with that because you know it's not a nice feeling when you go away and, and Sarah might not have slept very well for the last sort of week and she's got Max and it's just a bit stressful and you know, it's hard going and anyone that's got kids knows, you know, like sleep deprivation is the thing that kills you or certainly does with me and Sarah anyway. And um, the thought of her struggling at home would be really hard if, I've, if I'm going away to the tour for four weeks, you know. Um, so, you know, her, her family, the way they support her with that as well has a knock-on effect with me. Yeah. And But yeah, I think just, it's just always just there, that constant, you know, support and keeping you grounded but you know it's not like I'm just changed massively or anything but I think it's just uh it's just that one constant that you can always fall back on basically and um yeah it makes it makes a huge difference especially when you can just really concentrate on your cycling and you know that or you know when Sarge just makes lunch when I get back from from a ride and you know you kind of need your your fuel straight away and just there ready for you what you need and all that type of stuff like sound like a right diva now but you know it's just just get looked after mentally and physically on really. hand and shit <laughs> yeah you got a real shock when you do retire you're gonna be uh taking back what you said be like oh, actually I'll well, get back on the bike yeah that's the thing because when you're an athlete you can become so selfish and but <laughs> everyone knows that as well and respects that so you yeah. can get away with it but then yeah once you say like once you stop like yeah, be it. she'll be on the other foot. Yeah. Um, and how has your kind of approach to the sport changed since you guys had Max in? And how do you sort of juggle cycling and also being a parent? It kind of makes me more, or makes me want to get 
the most I can out of every session. So especially when I go away, it's like, right, I'm, a, I'm away now. Like I'm not seeing them for two weeks or so. I've got to make this count. So make sure, you know, you eat properly, you do everything right. You train really hard. Um, and you just make the most of that time where you can be purely 100% on your bike. Um, and then, yeah, even when I'm home, you know, you're just more productive. You're just like, yeah, you're training and, and you do that 100% and then you get back and, you know, sometimes your meals can be a bit thrown together because, you know, who knows where you go home to sometimes. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think that's the main thing. It just makes you appreciate what you do for a start and then also make the most of every every session totally and have you thought about what sort of career and life you want after cycling sort of post-retirement well not really um other than the odd podcast (laughs) (laughs) get um, in there now get the groundwork in there now guess you'll be fine (laughs) (laughs) but uh i think i'd I'd like to do a lot of little things rather than one job I, i couldn't see myself being a ds like a a coach in a team or anything like that because they're away just as much as the riders um you know i've got a foundation that started back here that's just been launched recently actually and do a lot more with that just basically giving kids the opportunity to to ride bikes um that they don't necessarily ever get the chance mm. um you know bits of that like under 23 welsh team as well I had a bit to do with them maybe you know be a bit more involved with that um, you know, so lots of of little things like that, really, that will all sort of add up. And yeah, and you want to? It's not like you kind of like right. I'm done with cycling. I want to move on to something else. You still want to sort of stay within the realms of the world of cycling. Yeah, yeah definitely, and, and try to give a bit back as well because I've had such an amazing life from cycling. Um, but yeah, I, it's all I know as well. Like, I'd love to stay. Maybe do something with a few other sports um but definitely stay stay involved in cycling yeah yeah and do you ever feel like you missed out on anything due to kind of the sacrifices of professional sport uh not really I think it was tough sometimes you know when you're growing up and you see your mates going out or going to uni and and having all those experiences but at the same time I would have much preferred to be doing what I was doing anyway um more recently though it is tough when you're away and you're missing weddings or um even worse funerals or you know just big birthdays or big occasions that are going on back home like i'd say i probably made 10 percent of them like during the year um you know like when i was best man for a couple of my mates they all they all have to plan it around me almost you know like okay you really are sounded like quite the diva aren't you (laughs) (laughs) yeah but so like that's when it's like, wow, well, that's, that's quite, well, I say bad, is it? But no, it's, it's good of them. Yeah. But like, can you imagine their, their fiance is like, what the hell? Why are we going to have our wedding in October just so he can be there? Like, he's nothing, he's the best man. Okay. But that's about it. Yeah. But yeah. So that's the hardest thing is missing all those things. But, you know, it's, it's all worth it in the end when, you know, you end up winning big races and stuff. But, yeah. And I guess that's like a message as well, isn't it? To kind of like young people who maybe feel like they're missing out on so much now because they're so committed to their sports. Like if you just keep putting the work in, like it all pays off in the end and don't kind yeah. of just and like, like I said, yeah, like I said at the very start, if it, even if you don't win what you set out to, at least you know you've done everything you, you, you can to, to be your best. And the last thing you want to be is that 60-year-old man sat in the corner of a pub <laughs> being like, oh, I could have done that. And it's just like, mate, you didn't. Well, yeah, you didn't. And if you didn't commit to it, that's your own fault. If it was an injury or something, then you're probably like 50% of the Welsh population who could have played for Wales, mm. you know. But, yeah. but that's the last thing I'd want is to have any sort of like regrets so you didn't give it 100%. Yeah. But I also wanted to touch on the Commonwealth Games. And I know you won gold back in 2014, but I wanted to ask, like, how does it compare competing? for Wales as opposed to kind of other championships when you'd be competing for Great Britain? That was definitely different because in cycling, as with athletics, really, you never get to compete for Wales. It's always GB. Um, so for a start, that makes it a bit more special because it's so much more rare. So, um, and then, yeah, 
when I did win in Glasgow and you heard, you know, the Welsh anthem, that was really special because... Because the only you know, time you really ever fit, hear it as yeah. someone from Wales is like rugby or football, really. And yeah. so it is, yeah, that sort of extra special to hear it in a setting which isn't that, I suppose. Exactly, yeah. And, and just wearing that Welsh jersey. Mm. Um, like I say, like, you don't get used to it, but it does become a bit more, a bit normal. And you don't ever take it for granted, but you kind of like, yeah, you do it a lot. But yeah, that's the big difference with Wales. You never get to do it. So it is really special. And um, yeah, it's, um, I'm looking forward to that. Fingers crossed. Um, so you actually did kind of mention it earlier about sort of songs and smells, but I always feel that both music and food kind of provokes a memory, whether it be good or bad. Um, is there a particular song that transports you back to a specific time or place every time you hear it? Uh, yeah, so... This will probably be a bit weird, but well, not <laughs> everyone weird, has but... actually said that as like a prerequisite to every answer they've given. It's really? been like, this is a bit weird, but <laughs> <laughs> um, so like you know that Mariah Carey one, all I want for Christmas. Okay, yeah, no, this is a bit weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that always reminds me of my best mate. He was my best man, and him dancing in like, I don't know, liquid or some horrible club back in Cardiff, like in <laughs> 2003 or something like just his dance and like how he's dancing to that just it takes me straight back to him and just yeah being drunk at Christmas time um and also a bit of a common theme about being drunk but there's another one with um like 50 cent and uh all these other rappers maybe Eminem and what's it called now you don't know or something and basically it's like five or six different rappers. We used to listen to this song anyway, before we went out. Um, we'd have drinks club before we went into town and we'd always listen to this and we'd always have a couple of, well, no, a couple of cigars. There'd be a couple of cigars going around. You'd, you know, yeah, be, how, how old were you? That sounds like a very sophisticated uh, thing to be doing for, for a night out on no, the lash when you're like 18. We were like 17, 18 and <laughs> listening to hip hop thinking we were gangsters. It wasn't, a, it, if we saw like, when you see pictures or videos now, you're like, oh my God, you look like a rock steak. <laughs> but uh, so that song takes me straight back to that as well. Um, and then finally, I guess, Sky Full of Stars, because that was our first dance. Oh, um, Like at our wedding. And um, whenever I hear that, that just takes me back to just the day as well, not the dance, because the dance was terrible. But um, yeah, that just takes me straight back to that day, which was pretty, pretty sweet as well. Yeah. Um- on the topic of your wedding, though, um, I know that it's kind of common knowledge that you are a big Eminem fan, but um, yeah. my sources tell me that apparently you and Saar did the sort of classic wedding rendition of Eminem and Rihanna Love the Way You Lie on your yeah. wedding day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was random because the bridesmaids actually did something for Saar. I think it was um, some Spice Girls song, actually, that they'd rewritten the lyrics to when they got up and sang that. Then after that, they were all like, oh, Sa, you should go up and do your rap. Because Sa learned all, I think just purely because it was always on in my car, he learned the Eminem bit. So Eminem, uh, Sa did the rap yeah. and I did the Rihanna bit. Oh, that's and, even um, better. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I've still got the video, actually. One of my mates filmed the whole thing. And yeah, we got that on our, uh, I don't know where it is, but our wedding DVD. Oh, so it was, good. It's on in the back of that. So I'll be good to show max plus any others in a later date yeah um and then the final thing is is there a meal that you eat or love that kind of triggers a memory of a specific time or place from your past uh, there is one meal that always reminds me of um before i raced and it's just like really basic but penne pasta you remember ragu sauce i don't even know if they do it anymore just yeah like just like tomato you, yeah sauce, yeah yeah <laughs> Penne with ragu and um, like breaded chicken, basically. Mm. Like some fried you. chicken or, yeah, and that's that's what I'd always have before like a race. And sometimes I used to be sick a couple of times, like with nerves, like when I was like 12, 13. And always see that that tomato sauce come back, but I still always <laughs> wanted it. So, but that meal, yeah, that, that takes me. Yeah. Back. Have you had it as like an adult or is it just the thought of it? I've had it a few times, yeah, like, yeah, say, you know, off-season, every now and again, I'm in Tesco, I'm like, oh, actually, 
That's what I get. I'll have some <laughs> some fried chicken or if I'm being a bit healthier, some breaded chicken and yeah, tomato sauce. Pasta. Some panne pasta. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Plain it's and easy simple. As well, though, isn't it? Quick yeah, and easy. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then finally, I know that you're a big fan of Welsh cakes, but mm. who makes the best Welsh cakes or where can you buy the best Welsh cakes from? So um well, Beth, my mother-in-law, her mate makes the best ones. Really? Okay, I yeah. want to try these. Um, my nan made some good ones, but Sadly, she's not around anymore to do it. But yeah, Julia, Julia Beth's mate. She's she makes the best ones. Um, and then buying them, uh, I can't even remember the brand name now. Um, with the castle. Oh um, yeah, I know the one. But have you? Because you, if you haven't, you need to try them. But have you been to Cardiff Bakestone in the market? No, which market? In Cardiff Market. Oh gosh, you're in for a treat. It's called yeah. Cardiff Bakestones. And yeah. they just it's like it's so cute. It's like have like all these like old school ladies and they just have a massive <laughs> bake stone and they just are like freshly churning out Welsh cake. Oh, I haven't even heard of that. Oh my gosh, yeah, they are there, so I mean. good. And they're like fresh off the press, warm. They're amazing. Ooh. Yeah. Honestly, Is that on the weekend now? I think they're open on Saturday. I don't know about Sunday, but yeah, honestly, get down there. <laughs> I'll be there tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> so good. And then the <laughs> other thing is, have you ever given Welsh cakes to anyone who's not from Wales and like seen them do like weird stuff, oh. like try and put butter and stuff on them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I brought them to um, one of the camps in Belgium once and the American guy was like, Hey man, can you put like Philly on this? And he's like putting Philadelphia. And... Like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, mate, you just eat them as they are. Yeah. Maybe a bit of sugar if you want, but that's it. Yeah. But, I get um, like really they, tra- everyone loved them though. Yeah. I get like so traditionalist about it as well. Like when I offer them to people being like, oh, you've got to try Welsh cake. And then they start being like, oh, what do I do with this then? Do I put butter and jam on it? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. No. And it's like, I'm sure like it's not going to ruin it, their experience for them. But I'm like, what are you doing? Don't touch them. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not a scone, is it? No, it's, it's not. It's a Welsh yeah. cake. There's a big difference. Um, yeah. But anyway, that's all the questions, Gab. But thank you so, so much for kind of giving up your time to come and chat to me. Pleasure. And um, I'll maybe see, see you again when you're next in Cardiff. Yeah. And nice let me know one. about the Welsh cakes as well, what you think? I will do. Will do. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks for having me on. See you. Bye.